Hello again, and welcome to episode 29 of Killing of Season 2 of Killing the Great White Male. We left off last time with a <laughs> really in the middle of a Royce rant on the topic of wealth tax on education that is the U.S. military's volunteer protocols. I, I think it's worth mentioning for me that I, I really first woke up to the problem, the problematic aspect of this um, back in, oh God, it must have been like 2004 or five. I was working in a congregation uh, in Berkeley and every week as part of their prayers, they read all of the U.S. military folks who had died in, in, in the wars in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was just was shocking to read off all of these names that had these, uh, well, uh, bluntly, sounded Latine. They sounded like uh, Sanchez, Gomez, Gonzalez, uh, 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 repetition, repetition, repetition of folks whose names sounded like they were either Hispanic or Latino, Latina, and, and as I started to do research into where these folks were from, it, it becomes this overwhelming feeling of, oh, shit, I'm opening Pandora's box because these folks were from, uh, yeah, many were from uh, terrible parts of, our, uh, of the, the continental United States, right? So they were from L.A., they were from Texas, they were trying to escape horrible situations, situations that may have been arguably worse than service in the U.S. military, which... Let's just be blunt about it. That That's not a fucking pleasure cruise right now. Um, so they were trying to escape these situations and end up in, in the military where, I mean, bluntly, these days, folks are, are lucky if they come home in a body bag because otherwise the, what happens is their mental health just gets continuously degraded and degraded as as, as our our U.S. government does such a poor job of supporting people and recovering from the traumas of war, especially modern warfare. Um, so there's all that rant that we, we can go on. But then as, as I started doing the research into where these people were from, they were from Puerto Rico. They were from Guam. They were from Micronesia. They were from all of these play, Philippines. They were from a, a bunch of different places where people are nominal U.S. like every single one of these places that I mentioned has different relationships with the U.S. government. But the thing that is is almost universally true is that they are not full U.S. citizens, even though some of them may have a passport. They, you know, take Puerto Rico. Um, We're talking about a, a group of folks who have no representation in Congress. So they have no representation around how a law is written. They do, however, get to vote for president. So people love to point at Puerto Rico and say, well, look at the privileges they have. They get to vote for president. But the fact is that voting for president is not full voting rights. These people are still disenfranchised from representation in in major ways. And instead, what they get is an oversight committee from the U.S. government that's appointed by our president. (laughs) So it's just this circular thinking rat fuckery. It's ridiculous. But these are the places that people are coming from as, as, they, as they try to, to find their way in the world. And, and, and for many people who are not citizens, they saw service in the U.S. military as a path to citizenship. 
And it's a path that has largely been cut off, especially as we saw under under our 45th president, where these are the folks that were being deported. They'd come home from service in the U.S. military and, well, you're good, cool. You're being deported to Guatemala or uh, where wherever, you know, wherever home, quote unquote, home was supposed to be. They may have lived in in the U.S. for for 10 or 15 years already and served for eight or 10 of that in, in the U.S. military. So. There's some fuckery afoot here. Um, yeah, anyway, there you go. When we talk about the wealth tax on education, that is the U.S. military's volunteer protocols, this is the complexity of the conversation. It has so many different insidious roots. Uh, but, but there you go. Let's dive back on in to the conversation with Nicola. And Bam. it's something that Kendall talks about, right? Yes. The whole reason she joined the army was because this was her reach to the GI Bill, and she happened to go through before we started closing off those avenues. Yep. Um, and it's something that you and I, I would argue, are lucky with, is that Chico was a, st- was a state school that happened to have a lot of, of veterans that I went to school with. This was not a, a strange or outlandish idea at all. And... I say that because overwhelmingly, as I got to, right, like I got lucky, I code switched, I tested in, I did all of those things, I rode my privilege as far as I could find it. All of a sudden, I was around people who knew no one who had ever done any form of military service. Yep. Who had no understanding or who were what are sometimes deemed Spartan families, which are families of officers generation to generation. Yes. And what we find is that socioeconomically, um, there are two groups um, who are overwhelmingly giving all of the bodies to the U.S. colonial and it is military bodies. machine. Even if and they're not coming home in body bags, we have veterans uh, succumbing to depression and PTSD mm-hmm. trauma daily, minute by minute in this country. So it's not just about coming home in a body bag. It's about ending up in one after they get back here because we're still not doing any of this in a way that is, right. is human-centered. Right. I mean, we, we, we unfortunately just saw this two weeks ago with mm. the lieutenant in Illinois, right? Like, yeah. wearing the uniform. You might, you might get lucky that they recognize the uniform over a hoodie, but even fucking still, yeah. um, we're not recognizing it. And, and so that was one of the interesting thing, the interesting conversations that I was having is like, look, I can disagree with who Biden has surrounded himself with. I can disagree that a lot of them are the same, um, you know, what everywhere else in the world would call center right, even though we call them liberal in the U.S. Good God, yes. Uh, advisors who are are pretty concerned, like really compared to the global scheme of things, pretty conservative. They're the American nobility. But when we look at, okay, this isn't a big shiny thing, Right. Biden campaigned on listening and on doing better. And it's not a big shiny get, but just fundamentally saying, you know what, we're going to stop an action that is disproportionately affecting black and brown and indigenous families. And that is not only putting those, those families for generations in danger, but we, we saw last year literally hundreds of veterans deported. Yes. Yep. Right. We can't, we can't resource responsibly. We can't be good stewards and bosses here. Yeah. So we're at least going to stop this level, right? And I, I think there's further we can go. 
I, I think was... there's more that can be done. But that's yeah. what struck me about that choice was, you know, there there are people and families and generations that are going to benefit from us not doing this. And and it's it, it, so I, I hadn't thought about that part of it. Right. What mm-hmm. I was reading was uh, I think it was on a in the BBC. Um, the story was written by somebody in Afghanistan talking about how uh, she and other women like her are dreadfully terrified of the fact that the U.S. is withdrawing because they've gotten to go to school for a few years mm-hmm. because they've gotten to ha- you know have have rights that they wouldn't have had uh, that they didn't have under the Taliban. Um, so it was one of those just like oh god like this whole thing needs we need different tools here like yeah. it's the same turns out being the world's cops is is problematic for the exact same reason that our cops at home are having issues like well this whole but thing. i also want to run back to to um straight back to the chapter the hood doesn't hate smart people yeah right that overwhelmingly the loss that we feel is that there is nobody safeguarding these women's rights to education. Yes. We're not safeguarding that at home. Ooh. We are not protecting Nailed the it. women here yep. to go to those. And, and yep. Kendall lays out this beautiful way that we, we posit these as choices, yes. right? But somehow you got to keep the power on. Somehow you got to keep fed. And that's like overwhelmingly what I loved about this book is that those are the conversations that have happened in my family that I didn't see represented in any of the feminist circles that I was around coming up. And that and I finally figured out that's why my family kept telling me I wasn't a feminist is because to them, feminism was the very shiny version of I will be able to pay someone else to help increase my bandwidth Yep. That is a subliving wage. <laughs> um, and whereas in my family, like the made it's like my grandmothers are exemplary. Both of them born in the early 20s ran multimillion dollar businesses in small towns with a third grade convent in Italian and uh, 12th grade uh, public school education. Jeez. Yeah. Right. And and there are there are systems in place that allowed them to. There are a lot of things that because they were given because in the 60s, we gave them that passing privilege of whiteness and yep. gave them those loans and allowed them access to it, that they could do it. But that fundamentally, they neither of them could go to school beyond what was ever normal in their area. Yeah, because somebody had to literally for both of them drive the horse cart to get groceries. Yep. So, and you mentioned in there the like the shiny version of feminism. I I love what she does on page two thirty three with that. Yet, despite a history of Black, Asian, Indigenous, and Latinx caregivers for the white children of those families, popular media would have you believe that every other group is unqualified to care for or raise their own children. Like Mm -hmm. the inherent, like again, we can't. It can't be at the expense of others. And it, it, I think I flip back to page 192. That's the, the place where she tells the stories of two other folks who, who she grew up with. 
Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's easy to pass uh, 192 there. It's it's easy to pass judgment on a kid like him. This uh, she's talking about a, a friend of hers. That, um, well, they killed him before he was 30. Is the previous line. Um, it's easy to pass judgment on a kid like him. Easy to assume that if I made it out, she's referring to herself there. So could he? But I had more choices and better resources. And she goes on to tell the story of a girl named Latoya. Uh, mm-hmm. Some grammar school, but she transferred in later. I didn't know her from kindergarten like I did some of the others. Um, she tells her stories, and then she looks at why this tale of two outcomes, top of page 193 here. Well, while I didn't get involved in the drug trade because I had some slightly greater fami- measure of familial support and supervision, that doesn't mean I didn't break the law. I trespassed, I shoplifted, I smoked weed, I started drinking alcohol at 14, blew curfew, did some petty vandalism. My crimes were more mundane, less likely to arouse police intervention. The hood isn't a hopeless place, but the obstacles that you can face there vary wildly based on mundane factors like whether there's a cop in your school or if you have family who will show up for you early and often. I I deeply appreciate, and this is... So I actually recommended this book to a friend of mine who asked um, for a book on intersectionality um, mm-hmm. simply because it, it embodies what I, I mean, if we're going to talk waves, it, this is a fourth wave book to me. It, it, it includes dynamic intersectionality, meaning intersectionality that, it, that has to acknowledge varying degrees of privilege throughout it. And I love what she does there with that, being able to acknowledge, you know, I, I, had, I had grandma when I came home, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of kids had nothing like that, you know, and, the, it, it, and grandma nagging me was a good thing for me. Um, and that, that was a resource. That was a privilege that some, some of the other kids in my neighborhood didn't have. And just that the, the importance of noting that we are all intersections of so many different like this is why identity politics parsing just doesn't work because we are all these amazing, unique, varietous mixtures of something spectacular. So we're, we're, we're not the sum of our parts. We're sometimes we're, we're, yeah, we're a, an experiment gone wrong. You know? And the other times mm-hmm. we're very much an experiment gone right. But that acknowledgement of the different and come on. And, and I guess there's, there's the part of me that's pissed too. Like, if a black woman from the hood in Chicago can acknowledge the types of privilege she had, why the fuck do white men have such a goddamn problem with it? Right. And that, like, that amazingness, right? The the amazing need to tell that story of oh, having God, yeah. come from nothing when you actually have everything. Yes. Um, is really, really fascinating. <laughs> like, it's... It's it's an interesting part of the American exceptionalism myth, right? Yep. Right, like you, the to to quote so many people, you know, the the idea of pulling yourself up from your bootstraps oh, infers that you have boots. Yes. Yep. It's a pretty big um, assumption there. <laughs> right. That is, that is a very very large yep. difference. Um, and it's 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 a foundationally fascinating discussion when I have it with people of different intersections too of like it took me years to understand how different my experience was than other people's in other regions right Mm. um and one of those like it's it's something that that she talks about a lot in the the way that that 
education is is proffered as a tool, but it requires you to constantly leave back parts of yourself. Yep. Um, and constantly layers of privilege to, mm-hmm. to even be able to do what is required of the system. Because, yeah, normative. Fuck. Well, yeah. And uh, so I got I got incredibly lucky. Um, I would never have called them subversive at the time, but I, oh. I did, in fact, have a subversive high school English department that was just like they were chaotic. Good. Um, oh, yeah, they were they were going to like so. So one of the one of the things and I love to hold up this example because it's like, oh, this is what happens. So if you've listened to the uh, Nice White Parents podcast, there's a real discussion of what happens when a school attempts is both gentrified and attempts to hold up diversity as a tenant Ooh. without actually valuing the voices within it. Oh, because that, and, that bit in this book was fascinating. Her conversations right? about the problems of gentrification and the values conflicts that begin happening, um, you know, around loitering keeps me safe. You right. Know, as a black woman in the hood, a bunch of us loitering around is we all know we're safe then, you know, whereas the white woman on her stoop, she assumes she's not safe because of it. Like just those right. basic assumptions around gentrification. But anyway, all right. The, go, co- go, the go. conversation of turning down a quiet street. Yes. Because because that's, that is my response. Terrifying. Like I do not fear walking through a place. And, and that is my experiences. That is where I have lived. That is because wherever I live, like my neighbors are my neighbors, regardless of if they have a roof or not. Yeah. Like they know me. Um, and And that is – my presumption and that is that that is a that that is directly against the american individualism story we tell and that wasn't a thing i understood until maybe the last 5 years that not everybody uh, yeah when they move to a place looks at like they think of themselves as a unit unto themselves and i was like wait what <laughs> you yeah. kidding me like how do you live anywhere yeah, <laughs> the myth of individualism the myth of individualism right but that one of the things that inherently changed that was that is why an experiment like that worked in my high school and didn't in others is that when they got to selecting the literature texts, the English department said, yes, so we will be doing Latin American lit and we will be offering three sections for native speakers. They will do their orals in their native language of Spanish. Oh, wow. Do you know how fast the AP and IB passing rates shot up? Yep. In a school that only had a 30% native English speaker population, when you're teaching Death of Artemio Cruz in the original Spanish, and you can do your orals in that. Damn. Right? But it's 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 this uh, passage here on 196 and 997. In 2007, yep. study of students in an alternative school setting, students reported that an adult rather than a peer was involved in their worst school experience with more than 80% reporting they had been physically or psychologically harmed by a teacher. Teacher bullying can also have a contagious effect, indicating to students that the bullying of a particular individual acceptable and making that individual vulnerable to more abuse. Only recently has teacher bullying of students been identified as a contributing factor to poor outcomes. And while there are studies in progress, there are no hard numbers on how often it is happening. And And yet how keenly that is when I, when anybody I know who has dropped out, it came from that. It wasn't the other kids. It wasn't somebody in their way. It was a combination of 
Why am I putting up with getting abused when I can actually pay my rent? Why am I putting up with being abused when I could just go pay my rent? This statement, when when it happened in the moment, it was one of those moments where I I was just like I I'm not sure what words I have. Like this is, first off, what's when somebody's twelve or fifteen or what you know there, there's a lot of ages that people drop out of the edge the 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 uh, K through twelve public education system in this country. There's there's a lot of different exit <laughs> exits off of off of that freeway. Um, but but the thing that that I think Nicola and I got uh, pretty, I mean, that we did a pretty decent job of in talking in, in this conversation um, is, is around, you know, why am I putting up with being abused? But the part that I think I'd, I'd love to see us actually spend more time on is why the fuck is a 12 year old worrying about paying rent? Like, but that is the truth of the reality for so many people in this country, in the United States, in the continental United States. Why the fuck are children worried about paying rent? And until we can fucking answer that question, we can't even begin to talk about why dropping out is a quote is a problem. We have to fucking be able to deal with that first conversation. Why on earth is a 15-year-old worrying about rent? That's wrong. Okay, so anyway, there you go. Uh, uh yeah. Oh, oh, and our next conversation, our next little bit of this conversation, will be the season finale. Um, so I, I hope you're enjoying it. Um, I hope you're as fired up as I am about this stuff. <laughs> Please share uh, uh, our, an episode or the podcast in general um, uh, on social media, and uh, I look forward to talking more with you soon. <laughs>